Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. And this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. My guest today is author Matt Rickle. Matt is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. His latest book is called Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul. Today, Matt and I talk about where creativity comes from, how to harness it, and what he learned while researching his book. We talked about why people generally fear being creative. Matt explains that kids become less imaginative around the fourth grade when they start internalizing what society deems as right and wrong. We talk about mind wandering and the feeling that comes with a sudden burst of creativity. And we chat about the difference between big C's and little C's and why creativity matters in the grand scheme of things. Okay, let's get to my conversation with Matt Brichtel. Matt. Hello, Erica. How are you? Good. I hear you're post-surgical. I am post-surgical, and I'm currently semi-prone on my back. You know what? I'm, I actually I actually feel, that makes me feel really good because I am, as by nature, semi-prone. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, I, I am mentally semi-prone. I resonate with that. I would say I, too, am semi-prone. And it actually connects somewhat, I think, to some of the foundation of your book in that I'm kind of always volleying different ideas back and forth in in my head. And it kind of requires me to be a little retracted from everything that's going on. Otherwise, I find that my creativity gets stifled if I'm really, you know, propped up and leaning into everything everyone else is doing. I almost started to to riff on what you were saying because it's actually completely dead on 
<laughs> yeah, well, let's go into it. Well, I was thinking about how early on when I discovered that there was a freakish creator inside me, I made some really hard decisions to stay away from being too attuned to the way everyone else thinks. I didn't do it because I was trying to be creative. I did it because I was trying to stay sane. And this is what I mean. In about 2000-ish, the New York Times offered to hire me as essentially a cub reporter. And Erica, this is like the job you think you want. Or it's the job that everybody thinks they want. And they said, all you have to do is move to New York. Well, I had lived in New York previously, gone to grad school there, and I had kind of come undone because that place is intense. Have you spent much time there? I lived there for a year and I, I couldn't metabolize it. And, you know, my kind of pet name for New York City is I call it a detris magnet. It kind of just draws up <laughs> any. <laughs> it draws Wait, up say, any. Hold on. First of all, say it again. <laughs> so I said it's a detris magnet. <laughs> that but word. Detris is, yeah, it's a good word. It, it describes my experience and seems like yours too. I just couldn't, I couldn't get anchored there. Yeah, I heard all the voices of all the people with all their ideas. I'm not blaming them. I mean, there are people with tougher skin, as it were. But I essentially said, well, I'll, I think I'm a happier, more creative version of myself. Again, I didn't say creative. I don't want to act that self-aware. I just said, I can't hear my voice there. And, and they relented and said, you can start in San Francisco. Well, a year later, they called me to New York and said, hey, you got to move back. Everybody moves back. And I said, are you happy with what I'm doing? And they said, yeah. I said, well, I'm happy. How come? And they said, because this is this is the way it works. These are the rules. And in that interim year, Erica, I had met my eventual wife and was feeling pretty good. And they did not relent. They said on October 1st, 2001, you're in New York or you're fired. And come October 1st, 2001, I sat at my desk in San Francisco and I waited for the phone to ring. (laughs) (laughs) And somehow they wound up relenting over the years. And I got to hear my voice more and more and more. And the, the point of that story is really that it was part of a journey that let me hear my voice and choose to hear my voice. What came after were things I attribute to trusting myself, including the Pulitzer Prize, 10 books, a bunch of songs that are really bad. And so probably that's not a good example. (laughs) But, But you'll hear in this book, I can back that stuff up with science and I certainly can back it up with story. And in this book, if your listeners don't know, Rhiannon Giddens, She made a much bigger version of that choice because she was on her way to becoming a megastar and chose her own voice instead. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. 
You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I'm having a lot of kind of deep connectivity with what you're expressing. You know, when the pandemic hit, my father is an endocrinologist and an infectious disease specialist. And I grew up in South Africa for a good portion of my life. And he was studying HIV and AIDS there. And so what I knew about pandemics is that they irrevocably change culture. And I was really close up to that experience. And so I knew when the pandemic was starting that, this was not going to be a casual, you know, space and time. It was going to be a tectonic shift. And so I was living in Los Angeles and I just recently gotten divorced and I, I moved to the desert, the high desert to a home where I was the only house for about a couple acres and there are no big buildings around. I could see the sunrise and the sunset every day. And I understand the privilege of being able to kind of, you know, extract myself, you know, from the din of, from, I would say the gentle din, like a, a light blanket of din of LA to the, to the desert. But in these two years that I was out there, just my nervous system and my ability to think and create just expanded exponentially. And so I really hear you on you know, as a deeply inquisitive person, I'm really drawn to urban environments because they're catalytic and there's all these things happening. But I think when I do my best work, I need to be extracted. So, you know, at the beginning of your book, you wrote, when it comes to intellect and creativity, I'd boil the relationship down to this. An intelligent person answers a question. A creative person comes up with the question in the first place and then answers it it essentially dispels the idea that creativity and intelligence are mutually exclusive. So can you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah. First of all, the science of intelligence is tricky on its face because it often uses IQ, which is not a good measure of intelligence, but it is the measure that much of this research uses. And it essentially says, I mean, it's, it's quite plain. An average IQ, which is hundred to 120 is sufficient to be a superb creator. And sometimes a, a high IQ, to the extent that's a measure of intellect, let's say 145 and change and above, can actually limit creative impulses. The thinking here is that just answering a question or being able to come up with the most logical response to a question is essentially playing by the rules of that system. And putting square pegs in square holes, as much as that might, no matter how nuanced those holes are, is not the same thing as coming up or imagining new holes and new pegs. I will say what you just distilled was actually pretty profound because this idea that 
you know, a high IQ, again, culturally, something that's rarefied, you know, can be an inhibitor of creativity. And that's really interesting. We're not going to have enough time to, to break into, you know, all of the patriarchal components that make up so much of the framework we live in, but it gives me a lot of pause in terms of what do we value in terms of intelligence? Yeah. Like what is, what's the value system we place on it? To the extent that the, that the value is answering a specific question asked by a system, I don't think that is a, a fair measure of intellect. It absolutely has value in a civilization. There's no doubt, but it can't encompass all of intelligence. There's just no way because there's so many contributions made by so many people that can't answer that question. So just, you you got to toss it out on that ground alone. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Can you speak a little bit about the spice rack theory of creativity? It's a good segue from the intelligence question because a lot of creativity comes from allowing in all kinds of information and connecting dots among that information. But to the extent you can connect dots, or the extent to which you can connect dots, depends how many dots you have available to you. So I'm actually going to cite some interesting science in a, in a second, but the metaphor I wound up writing about in this book is the spice rack theory of creativity. Very simply, if you walk into your kitchen, the a number of things you can make depends entirely on how many spices you have. And the number of things as a creator that you can create depends entirely on the, the amount of emotion, perspective, information that you have to draw from. And it's decidedly distinct from intelligence, as you can plainly see, but just to put a fine point on it, if you have a particularly rigid worldview, and I mean, I'm not going to get political here because it's not what I do. It's not the it's not how I roll. I'm more into the science. But let's just say you're exceedingly partisan one way or the other, or you have a whimsical explanation for the world and you hew only to that explanation. It's really hard to let in stuff outside that worldview that might inform your spice rack of creativity. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to Airbnb dot com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. The thing this brings up for me, though, and it actually tracks back to 
what you shared about getting the job at the New York Times and still sitting in San Francisco, you know, the first day you're supposed to be in New York and waiting for the call. I think there is so much fear embedded in the creative process. Maybe a better word might even be terror of, of tapping into our own creativity, especially because, you know, connecting to what you said around IQ and the idea of intelligence being connected to the ability to answer a question in this very specific way, you know, there, there isn't a lot of, you know, modeling of creativity as we move through our childhood and kind of into adulthood. And so can you speak to just the, the fear or the terror that comes with tapping into creativity and, and, and how do we mitigate that or, or navigate it? Or have you figured yeah. out ways? First of all, big conceptually, we're thinking about why we're prone to providing answers and color within the lines, if you will. And there's actually really good reasons for that. There's good reasons economically. It's where the jobs are. But let's go back even further to child rearing. So if we're talking about giving ourselves permission to create and take risk. This is what it's like to raise a kid. These phrases will resonate with you, whether having been a kid or as a parent, don't run in the street. Don't pick your nose and eat it. Stay on your side of the back seat. Don't eat that off the floor. And what happens when you're a kid for very good reason is that you get indoctrinated into a system that says no before yes. What is the reason why I shouldn't do something before I should do something? And in the late 1950s and early 60s, a pioneering, very creative creativity scholar asked the question, what happens to creativity when kids are young and discovered something called the fourth grade slump? So one of the key measures of creativity is how many ideas can you come up with? Like if, if I show you a brick, what are all the things you can do with a brick? There's some version of that was given to kids, a group of kids starting very early in school. And what this researcher discovered is that around fourth grade, kids would come up with fewer imaginative ideas. They would actually get less imaginative. They could do some things better, but they would get less imaginative. And that research and others that have followed reinforced this idea of roughly a fourth grade slump. And it looks to be around the time that young people begin to internalize the idea of no versus yes, of coloring inside the lines, of being really good at taking tests, but less good at letting their mind roam outside of the rule system. Now, before we judge all that too harshly, I can tell you as a parent myself, there's a pretty good reason you say don't run into the street and don't, you know, don't pick your nose and eat it. We're trying to create rules that help someone understand how to survive. The upshot of all that, that it also begins to override the impulse to come up with the imaginative, crazy, outside the lines idea. It doesn't mean that kids shouldn't learn rules or we shouldn't learn rules, but there's a tension. And the tension is perpetual. And the tension is between staying within those rules or hewing closely enough but also finding something new. And the challenge, to, to, to come back to your question about terror, what makes creativity difficult is 
that over time, if it is effective, even if it hues relatively closely to what came before, it's still ultimately extremely disruptive and it does require risk. Those are two different things, but they're both causes for being really frightened. I want to jump back and talk about the neuroscience for a moment, because one of the questions I had was to ask you kind of like what is happening in our brain when yeah. inspiration or creativity strikes. You, you seeded this beautifully by talking about your high desert experience, because let's just say broadly, there are two networks in the brain that are involved in creativity. One is the high desert and it's rolling and it, it, it is, I think of it as your, it's your subconscious effectively. And then there's the urban environment, which is the rugged terrain of the analysis. And when an idea pops up, it pops up oftentimes in your subconscious, in a freer flowing state. And you are not directed at the question at hand, and you may not even have a question in mind. In at the University of California at Santa Barbara, researchers took some physicists known to be highly creative and some writers and artists known to be highly creative and asked them what they were doing to track what they were doing when their big aha ideas hit them. And about 20% of the time, what they were doing was focused on some other mundane task. They weren't thinking about the thing that they were either trying to solve or somehow solved through an epiphany. 20%. Now, the researcher said to me, how many things can you be the very best at when you're not trying 20% of the time? It's kind of a, an unheard of thought scientifically, but what's happening in that moment is that when your brain is otherwise directed, that subconscious part of your brain is connecting a bunch of dots the significance of it being subconscious is if you were analytically directing your brain at that issue, you might essentially be playing within the rule system. Does that make sense? Like Absolutely. that, that rule directed part of your brain, the executive control is super valuable in vetting what comes out of your subconscious, but it may not be so great at having you come up with the random dot connecting thing. What I'm really taking away though, just in this, in this last, in this last piece is if you scratch too hard at the thing, you are playing within the rule system. And especially for me working in tech and working on building a product right now, we're working on building an app that's focused on women's health education, you know, just recently had a big unlock around that. And a lot of the ideas that I've, I've had around the product have come when I'm doing something else. Oftentimes, some of my best ideas will happen when I'm in the shower or I'm doing something completely different. And I think to your point around, you know, untethering yourself from the rule book and the, the rigidity of certain kinds of thinking, I often sometimes internally will have to you know, vocalize to myself, like, it's okay to like jump from this thing you're doing to this thing from 10 days ago, like to tell myself that my focus is actually not dysregulated or, or, or right. I'm not dysregulated. Like I'm, I'm going somewhere. Like you have to give yourself permission to like 
abandon the thing that you're doing to return to something else in order to pull that nugget out. And that makes sense. The the word is, it makes sense. And the word permission is so vital here. And actually there's science to back up what you're saying around mind wandering. These active mind wandering can be really pregnant with possibility, but the mind wandering science also shows, and you alluded to this, that people really don't like to mind wander. They think they're being unproductive or they start worrying during that period when in fact worry actually could be some ideas bubbling up if you can sit with that fantasy can be ideas if you can sit with it by no means i don't think or any either of us saying for those listening that you know you just sit and let your mind wander all the time rather that you create some space for this activity. And it's hard to create space right now, particularly if mind wandering becomes worry and you don't want to worry, or you see mind wandering as unproductive and you don't want to be unproductive, or you live in a time and place where every time you feel a little bored, you go to your device. Like I have to will myself. Let's say I got on the elliptical this morning and I'm in the middle of writing something for the New York Times that I'm really passionate about. And I sort of also wanted to watch True Detective. So Matthew McConaughey has me by the toes right now. (laughs) Like his teeth are sunk into my toes. And I really want to watch the end of this. But I also knew, and it bore out, that if I got on the elliptical and let my mind run, just run, that this story was going to start to form. And it did. And I had to let myself not be distracted by somebody else's needs or in that case, Netflix's needs or HBO's needs were not my (laughs) needs right then. I'll be, no, you you still have me HBO, but you got to give me a little room. (laughs) No, I, I, I really, really hear that. And I think this idea of mind wandering, having, you know, there's science behind the value of it. You know, I, mind wandered probably for about seven hours yesterday and I was working on this presentation to give to my team about just where we're going with the product and I was building out a taxonomy which is one of my favorite things to do but it was under pressure under time pressure like I needed to do it by Sunday afternoon and I woke up really early so that I could like kind of sit in that in that space you know, I was in the the mind wandering of just kind of like kicking around, not really doing anything, not watching any TV either. Like I just was walking around the house. I would walk outside. I'd That's like it. do some skincare stuff. Just be with the irritability that comes with mind wandering. It's very much yeah. like meditation. Like I've had a meditation practice since I was like 17, 18. I'm 35 now. So you kind of get into this headspace of like that. I'm hating this. I'm hating this. I could be doing something else, but somehow I was able to just sit with that, just sit there. And I was able to even talk to my partner and be like, I'm not doing anything right now. It looks like I'm not doing anything, but I, I know that it's going to get somewhere. I'm want to just say, I'm getting a lot of permission out of hearing you articulate the value of mind wandering and also acknowledging the anxiety that can come with it. Because I think collectively we are all exhausted. We're all traumatized. Anxiety and depression are more rife than ever. And so I think this idea of just kind of tending and befriending 
those feelings that come up, knowing that there's something on the other side that's a payoff, I think is really well, valuable. Just to, just to seize on that point, knowing that there's a payoff. I mean, there is an act of faith involved in this, but to to go back, to, to connect this to something really potent, when you get that aha moment, it is so thrilling. And I don't know if you had it yesterday, but almost invariably, I have the sense you've experienced the euphoria of inspiration. Um, Oh, yeah, totally. Can you tell people what it feels like? What I will say about having that burst of creativity is that it's addictive. Yes. I'm always trying to get back to it and find new, new situations to place myself in to get to that feeling again. And I, I always, you know, I was saying to a close friend of mine the other day, she's a curator, Thelma Golden, who I adore so much. And I was saying to her, like, when you have an idea that is like on the cusp of coming out, it's almost like you're constipated. Then after the idea comes out, you feel like, oh, I feel so much better. So I would definitely describe creativity as like a high once it's reached. And then you're always trying to get back there. That's kind of my feeling. There's a lot of science in this book, but what I'm about to say is more hypothesis. I've experienced that a lot. I can tell you chapter and verse stories from great creators who describe that euphoria. My theory on it is when that happens, it is nature's way of encouraging us to break through the status quo. And if it didn't feel really good, we wouldn't bother because it's much easier to leave things as they are. I mean, if things are working reasonably well, or you've got a comfortable way of doing things, there is no reason to change. Change is disruptive. Change is scary. Change involves risk. That feeling that creators get that makes them feel like, well, I don't know about you, but when it happens to me, I must, must, must execute. It can be such a minuscule thing, a song, but it feels like it must exist. One of the stories I heard in the book that was, I heard early on that even prompted me to write it was years ago, I did a syndicated comic strip. Our editor was the editor of Peanuts. I said, yeah. And I said, I said, Amy, tell me a story about Charles Schultz. And this is the story she told me. She said every morning he would get up and go, oh my God, I have got the idea for the perfect comic strip. And he would start writing with such passion and enthusiasm. He had a blank piece of paper and against the tide of nothingness, he would create from whole cloth and he'd wake up the next morning and he'd look at it and he'd go, yeah, it's close. I don't know. Wait a second. I've got an idea. And again, he'd go off. And for people who get that feeling, it's understandable it would be that compelling because otherwise, why put something on a blank sheet of paper? It's easier to just put your pen down. That's my theory about why nature has given us such a compelling feeling, a a drug-like feeling. 
let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the US. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. That really resonates and it it's almost a perfect way to bring our conversation to a close. But I have one more question that's a little bit of an outlier, but I wanted to ask it. In the book, you talk about the difference between the big C and the little C. Yeah. Can you just sum that up? Because I feel like there were kind of glimmers of that in what you just talked about. Yeah. Early on in this book, I'm playing basketball out front with my son of my house. And I say, I'm going to try to interview Bono for this book, the U2 lead singer. And he says, Bono, is that a him or a her? Now, he wasn't asking for gender reasons. It's because he's never heard of Bono. And the reason I bring that story up is creativity is not the same as fame or fortune, and it's not the same as changing the world. And it's easy to assume that by creativity, what Eric and I are talking about is changing the world. It's not. Each of us is contributing little tiny bricks in the gigantic progress of the human species as we create. And those are little C's and they matter. You know, I think it was maybe Galileo who said his creations were built on the shoulders of giants. So while we down the list of people who we think will remember right now, I just like to draw the distinction between creativity that we do every day that is in everybody and that matters. It fundamentally matters. It matters because in the book, you'll see creativity, creative people are happier and less burdened, but it also matters because these are the, the little tiny steps forward that humanity makes that contribute to the leaps. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Matt Brichtel. I hope you'll pick up a copy of his fascinating book, Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.